Welcome back, everybody. I'm James Hauser, and this is Unknown Soldiers, and I am so, so thrilled that you've come this far with me. And we're going to go so much farther if you stick around, because today I am beginning my first series. To be honest with you guys, I've always intended this podcast to morph into a series-based format eventually, telling longer stories over multiple episodes. There's only so much history you can fit into an hour and a half. So for the bigger narratives, for, for when I want to talk about, I don't know, the Crimean War, or the German Wars of Unification, or the Falklands War someday, I got to tell them in longer stories, longer formats. So I hope that if you like what you've heard so far, you'll stick around for more. The story I'll be telling over the next four episodes is... The story of the Jacobite rebellions, mainly the most famous and most important one, the Jacobite Rising of 1745, often known as just the 45. And I'm super excited to tell you all about it. Now, this short little introduction is meant to do four things. First, it's meant to provide you with a very basic framework of what these events were, a very broad overview of the context, and why I'll be spending four episodes to talk about them. Second, I'll explain some of the terminology I'll be using, the geography I'll be discussing, just to establish a baseline with some of that. Third, I'll talk about the historiography, what other people have written about Jacobite Wars in the 45, the history of the history. Finally, I'll talk about the myth of these events, the myth versus the reality and what that means for our story. If you need the brief introduction or if you're interested in any of those other factors, great. I will not be long, but if you want to jump right into the story and feel like I'm wasting your time at any point, the first episode is up. So if you're just itching to go on campaign, feel free to stop, pause, come back to this if you want, but go ahead and start episode 11, The Exiled Kings. You're still here? That's good. That's great. Let's continue. So what were the Jacobite rebellions? What was the 45 and why am I talking about it? First, I need to give you the setting. Our story is going to take place in Europe between 1688 and 1746, though the backstory goes back to 1603 and the repercussions are felt well into the present day. But this time period, 1688 to 1746, was what some call the Age of Enlightenment, the Age of Reason, though religion, as we will see, still remained very, very important. Europe was divided up into powerful kingdoms, most of which were getting stronger and more centralized all the time. This is still an age before electricity or steam power, but it's not medieval. If it helps, our story kicks off, our story begins around the time of the Salem Witch Trials and ends about 30 years before the American Revolution. So during this whole period, America is still in the colonial phase and the colonies were indirectly affected by this story, by what was going on in Britain in this time period, but they won't be a big part of the story. I'll mention them, but they're not going to feature. For the most part, this was an age of limited war. Countries didn't go to war to overthrow the enemy king or destroy his nation. Wars were too expensive and too difficult for that, and most people didn't want to upset the balance. Instead, countries like France, Spain, Britain, the Dutch Republic, Austria, Prussia, fought limited wars for limited objectives. They were careful not to upset the balance of power or use up too many resources. Wars were fought by professional armies in uniforms, armed with muzzle-loading muskets and artillery trains that moved very slowly and only gave battle when they really wanted to. Sieges were usually a bigger deal than battles. That's how war looked in the late 17th, early 18th centuries. Warfare in the Age of Reason. The major players in this story, as far as countries go, are pretty much all in Western Europe. 
we have the three kingdoms of England, Scotland, and Ireland, which are still separate entities at the beginning of this story, and part of this series will detail how those countries came together under one government, known today as the United Kingdom of Great Britain. Throughout this story, Britain would be in conflict with other European powers, especially France and Spain. France was the most powerful country in Europe, a centralized monarchy under the luxurious Sun King, Louis XIV, the most famous personality of the period. The rivalry between Britain and France plays an important role in this story, since the French would be the main supporters of the Jacobite rebellions as a way of weakening their greatest enemy, Great Britain. A big portion of the story will focus on kings, some queens, and the idea of kingship. In particular, the contest between two different factions, two different dynasties, for a throne they both felt should belong to them. But as I'll show you in today's episode, the struggle wasn't just about which dimwit got to sit in the shining chair. The struggles between the Stuart and Hanoverian dynasties were about much more than just the throne, but about two competing worldviews, two different ideals, two different visions of the future of Britain. The kings were the figureheads each side looked to, but there were enormous issues at work in the struggle, issues that you can probably relate to the present day. So the core of our story is going to take place almost entirely in Britain, England, and Scotland from about 1688 to 1746. It concerns the Stuart dynasty and their reigns as kings of England and Scotland from 1603 to 1688. The last Stuart king, James II, turned out to be so unpopular that in 1688 he was overthrown by his daughter Mary and her husband William of Orange in what became known as the Glorious Revolution. James and his family went into exile in Europe, and the Stuarts would spend the next century trying to regain the throne for their dynasty. Because the Latin equivalent of James is Jacobus, their cause became known as the Jacobite cause, and their ideology became known as Jacobitism. Lots of people in England, Scotland, and Ireland were Jacobite loyalists, dedicated to overthrowing the Glorious Revolution and restoring the Stuart dynasty to the throne. This is the part where I'm going to tell you what is going to happen in the next four episodes. I'm giving you the ending to the story, but I feel like, personally, the story is about the journey, not the end. The Stuarts and their Jacobite followers spent a century trying to launch rebellions in England, Scotland, and Ireland to reclaim the throne. Major conflicts occurred in 1689, 1715, 1719. All of those were unsuccessful. The most famous and dramatic of all these uprisings, though, came in 1745, and this is the one I'll be focusing on. The Jacobite Uprising of 1745 is often just called the 45. It was led by James II's grandson, Prince Charles Edward Stuart, better known to history as Bonnie Prince Charlie. He landed in Scotland in 1745 and raised an army largely composed of Scottish Highland clansmen. They overran most of Scotland, won some battles, and even invaded England itself, almost making it all the way to London. But in the end, the British government rallied, and the 45 came crashing to a bloody halt at the Battle of Culloden Moor on April 16, 1746. The charging Highlanders attacked an army twice their size and were mown down by the disciplined volleys of Redcoat infantry and the blasts of the British artillery. Charlie fled into exile, and the Highlands were ravaged by repression and cultural genocide for the next several decades. The disaster at Culloden was the nail in the coffin for the Jacobite cause, and with Charles's death in 1788, the Jacobite era came to an end. 
But the 45, Bonnie Prince Charlie and his Highland clansmen became legendary, heroes of myth and memory that live on in one of the most cherished and celebrated epics in Scottish history. So those are the historical events I will cover in the next four episodes. I will spend today's episode, episode 11, talking about the background of the Stuarts and the Jacobite cause, along with short accounts of the early Jacobite risings of 1689, 1715, and 1719. Episode 11 will be slightly longer than my usual episodes, just because I want to fit all that context in there. Just shove it in there. Consider it a jumbo episode. That will lead into episodes 12, 13, and 14, where I will discuss Bonnie Prince Charlie and the 45 in the rich detail I think they deserve. This will all culminate in episode 14 with the Battle of Culloden, and I will cap it all off with a big old summary of why the heck this all matters. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. I've chosen the Jacobite Rebellions in the 45 for my first series for a few reasons. I'm pretty committed to not dumping you, my audience, into the pool of random obscurity too early. The 45 is extremely well-known in Scotland, but not very well-known in America, aside from maybe a few popular media portrayals and a vague notion of a Highlander uprising. So for me, it hits the sweet spot of unknown, but not too unknown, I guess you could say, for the first series. I'm not dumping you guys in some crazy South American or Central Asian war right off the bat. But it's also a subject I'm very passionate about, and that is ultimately fascinating to me, not least because I think its importance is underrated for a few reasons. Things could have gone very differently in 1745, and the possibilities for how that could have changed British, American, and world history are endless. The Jacobite Wars were a global event. And, of course, it's a very dramatic and interesting story. And that's going to be one of my main themes throughout this series, that things could have been different, that history is not a train on a track, that small and big events, global forces, major shifts, and personal decisions can change the course of events. Things did not have to be this way. Maybe this is a debate, I don't know, between free will, determinism, something, I don't know. But if you want to deep dive into philosophy, guys, you've come to the wrong place. That's a different podcast. Don't know which podcast, but it's a different one. So there are some words I'm going to use in this series. I'm going to refer to the Glorious Revolution of 1688 as the Glorious Revolution. Now, the Jacobites never thought that it was A, glorious, or B, a legitimate revolution. They thought it was an evil coup. They did not call it that. So it's not like there's a consensus in the terminology. Glorious revolution can be a loaded term. But much like when I chose to refer to the Nimipu as the Nez Perce, just bending to the will of historical record, I'm sacrificing a little bit of accuracy for clarity. Same thing when I refer to the opposing sides in this conflict. I'll refer to the forces of the Glorious Revolution in the Hanoverian Dynasty as variously British, Hanoverian, or government forces but I'm mainly going to refer to the Jacobites as just Jacobites. Jacobite army, Jacobite forces, Jacobite leaders. In places where a lot of historians would call them the Scots, that's not entirely accurate because a lot of them weren't Scots. So I'm going to say Jacobites. I'm going to be saying that word a lot, so get used to it. Now, because the 17th and 18th centuries didn't have our wonderful modern tradition of naming your kid the most original combination of letters you can think of, A lot of people in this story share the same name. No kidding, there are about 20 people named John Campbell from the Highland Campbell clan. I'm going to work around that by referring to most noblemen by their titles. So, John Campbell, Duke of Argyle, 
is just Argyle. William Augustus, Duke of Cumberland, is just Cumberland. Prince Charles Edward Stuart, I'm just going to call Charlie most of the time because, well, he's kind of the protagonist for half of this story. And if I have to distinguish between people, say, James II and his son, James Stuart, I'm going to make sure I distinguish between them. I'm going to tell them apart. So James Stuart, I'm going to call James III, James Francis Edward Stuart, or just James after his father's out of the picture. So I'm just going to make sure I tell these people apart as much for my sanity as for yours. Then there's geography. It is, guys, it is hard. It is hard to get geography across orally. Really hard. Remember the Malta episode? I had to describe how the harbor looked, and it was, you know, it is really hard, but I will do my best. But luckily for you guys, I will have maps for you on my website and on Facebook and whatnot. There's going to be one big map of England, Scotland, and Ireland, and one map of just Scotland. And these ain't just any old maps. These are homemade maps with all the important places on them that I drew just for you. If I mention a place in the series, it is going to be on the map. So if you need to, go ahead and take a look. Unless you're driving, in which case, do not do that. Don't ever say I didn't do anything for you. And I plan to do this for all of my big series. I probably won't do them for single episodes because this this whole thing does take a lot of work. This is a fair amount of my free time. And there's only so much many hours in a day, right? All my sources for this series will be in one ultra source post that will span all the episodes, all the short rounds, you name it. I'm not going to break it up because it's all basically one work. This whole series is all one work. So there's going to be like 30 books for this series on the source post. And if I need to talk about any of the content in more detail, I will. So that about wraps up all the housekeeping, I think. Next big thing is the historiography. Ooh, now that's a big old word, ain't it? For those of you who don't know, for those of you who aren't, haven't done an academic history class in college, on a college level, historiography is essentially the history of the history, the body of historical work on a particular subject. It's a, it's a word that professional historians use to describe the professional literature on any one period or event or theme or person. When we talk about the historiography of the American Revolution, for instance, we're talking about how historians' views and interpretations of the American Revolution have changed over time. One of the most prominent historians of the Jacobite era, Daniel Jecky of the University of Manchester, has divided historical perspectives on the Jacobite cause and the 45 into three distinct categories. The first are rejectionists, those who believe that the Jacobite cause wasn't very important and stood no chance. This view is often called the Whiggish, or the Whig historian movement, the idea that human history is a constant march of progress that cannot be undone. They believe that the Jacobites stood in the way of that progress, that they were the last gasp of an ignorant, superstitious reaction that stood in the way of civilization and enlightenment. For these people, Jacobitism was a contest between civilization and traditional barbarism, with the Jacobites representing barbarism Civilization won, and that's all there is to say about it. Many traditionalist British historians, like Lord Macaulay and the 20th century George Trevelyan, were on board with this belief. The second are pessimists. Those people that believe the Jacobite cause might have been noble and was definitely important, but that it was doomed from the get-go. There was no chance. They claim that the power of the British state was just too much for the Jacobites to ever defeat, and that Jacobite sentiment quickly gave way to an acceptance of the new regime. 
This ideal tends to get bound up in the more sentimental, romantic tradition of seeing the Jacobite cause as a tragic saga, as noble but misguided and ultimately doomed. But not always, not all of these people. This is the view for many people who are sympathetic to Jacobites, but believe they never could have won. Authors like, to some degree, although I don't want to pigeonhole these authors, uh, Bruce Lenman and Linda Colley. The third group are the optimists. Those people that believe the Jacobite cause had a very real chance of succeeding and was a more complex and powerful phenomenon than people give it credit for. This faction has only become really prominent in the last few decades, with people like Daniel Zecchi, Murray Pittock, and Frank McClinn challenging long-held assumptions about the Jacobite cause in the 45 with new evidence. Pittock focused on cultural aspects to prove Jacobitism's strength across the British Isles. Frank McClinn focused on economic aspects to show how changing economic circumstances drove people to support the Jacobite cause. Even military historians like Christopher Duffy show that there was a very real chance for Jacobite military victory in 1745. For the optimists, Jacobitism was a real challenge to the British state on both a philosophical and material level, probably its biggest and most dangerous challenge of the 18th century, including the American Revolution. If you can't tell, I'm basically an optimist. I'm not convinced the Jacobite cause was as huge as some historians claim, but I am convinced there was a very real chance for the Jacobites to succeed and overthrow the British government. And as we'll see, that would have been an event of enormous implications, not just for British history, but for world history. Not sure if you know this, but the whole British Empire thing was kind of a big deal for like 300 years, and the Jacobite cause stood a decent chance of derailing that entire chain of events. Things could have been enormously different. Finally, done with historiography. Historiography's out of the way. I'm going to address the myth and memory of the 45. Like most historical events, there are certain parts of the narrative that are taken as gospel, but which just aren't true. The myth of the 45 goes something like this. Scotland was oppressed under the heel of the evil English until Bonnie Prince Charlie showed up to lead her to freedom. His army were all gallant Catholic Highlanders, brave and noble savages, ready to fight for their traditional rights against the economic and military might of the filthy redcoats. Though they had many successes under their brave prince and they were loyal to the end, the superior resources and numbers of the English won. On the field of Culloden, they fought their last gallant battle and they were beaten. The last war for Scottish independence was lost, and the British had won. The Scots yearned for the return of their beloved Charlie, singing songs and writing poems, but he was never able to return, and the old noble Scotland of the stories and songs passed away. That is, in large part, the myth of the 45. That's the story you'll get from Scottish folklore and songs and TV shows and novels and historical exhibits. But I think you can already guess that it ain't the whole truth. A lot of Scots, even a lot of Highlanders, fought against the Jacobites. Many of the people who fought for Charles were forced into the ranks against their will, more than the people who fought against him. Most of Charles's soldiers weren't Catholic, but different forms of Protestant. And Jacobite support was stronger in certain parts of the Lowlands than in many parts of the Highlands. Charlie wasn't the perfect hero of the legends, but he wasn't the buffoon or villain of anti-Jacobite portrayals, And the 45 never really was a war for Scottish independence. The truth is much different, much murkier, than the myths and the stereotypes in the pop culture. And you know what? I think the reality is a better story.
It certainly has more to tell us. That's about all I have to say for this introduction. I hope you stuck around. If you didn't, that's okay too. Of course, if you didn't, I don't know why you're listening to the end and not all the rest of it. Whatever. So I hope you're ready for my first series, a great romp through British and Scottish history. Pack your bonnets and your broadswords, load your musket, and don your red coat, and join me for the next few weeks as we go on campaign in Scotland. 